Welcome to That'll Preach, weekly podcast where we talk about all kinds of fun things regarding Christianity, theology, philosophy, all the all the all the wonderful things that you like to hear. And we do it in such an entertaining way. I'm Brian, and I'm I said my name really strange. I'm Brian, and Brian. I'm with my assistant Paul, my intern Paul. You're my intern. That's well, okay. Okay, <laughs> we're getting a little hostile here. But uh, Paul is here. We are going to be continuing our series on old dead guys, looking at some of the figures in church history that are really important, especially uh, this first section is about the apostolic fathers. These are the second generations of Christians. These are people who knew the apostle John. These are people who were in their Bible studies, quote unquote. Who, Technically, uh, Irenaeus is not an apostolic father. All right. Thanks for listening <laughs> to this podcast. We are canceling this podcast. The Apostolic Fathers are Polycarp, Clement, and Ignatius. Clement of Rome. Those are also the three starter Pokemon you get, right? That's right. Polycarp. Exactly. Polycarp. Clement. Clement. <laughs> We're so strange. I'm sorry to all of our viewers who expect high-quality content from us. This is very high-quality. It's true. You get comedy and theology, and that's our tagline. Absolutely. Comedy and theology. Yeah, that should be our tagline. Slightly what are we, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> uh, but we do want to talk about... A particular, we still a church father. Yes. He's just not, he's one, not of that. one of the apostolic. Right. He, I guess technically he's third generation, right? Irenaeus is, so he's the a apostle of John Polycarp. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, influenced Polycarp. Polycarp. And then Polycarp taught I thought it was Papias. No. No, it wasn't? I mean, Papias was also affiliated with John. Okay. But Polycarp is one of the actual right. apostolic so fathers. If you want to know about that. Polycarp, you can check out. Uh, one of our episodes is called Polycarp is Not a Pokemon. Yep. Dead serious. We didn't name it that. But <laughs> yeah, uh, you, did. you should just make sure you listen to that if you want to get the download on, uh, on, on, on Polycarp. But uh, Irenaeus is really important. But first, got to start with the hot take. And you, Do you have a hot take? I do. And I'm looking at the object of the hot take right now. Oh, really? I can't wait for this. It's not you, though. Oh. Um, although it's related to you. So here's the thing. Sunflower seeds are not worth eating. Because they involve way too much work this and is, you get so little payoff. No. They're just, they're, you have to, I was watching you consume, consume is a strong way of even putting it. You got like a massive bowl of shells and you had to work like what, 30 seconds, 45 seconds to get one little thing out of it. Oh. It's just not, it's just not if you're, worth it. If you're an amateur, it takes that long. I love it. It's just, I was it's just watching that you, you can enjoy. intimately up closely intimately. as you were. Really? <laughs> Yeah, it's just not. I don't get the appeal. Well, I mean, I, it, it's it, seasoned, I, I like, so I like, you like yeah, the salt. The, the salt. The salt is what gets me. So if it was, and not, it, it's something you're doing, like it, it's, a, it's a nice pastime. I mean, if you're watching something or you're just bored and you're reading something, you're just watching a YouTube video, you just eat some sunflower seeds. Just get some popcorn. Just get something that actually. I don't like. I don't think popcorn. What? I, I mean, it's not that I don't like popcorn. I just don't think that popcorn works in that manner for me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, gets in your uh, teeth. It just uh, popcorn. It just, what kind of what do you what 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 popcorn are you eating? Popcorn doesn't the, get stuck in like your teeth. There's like hard stuff in the in the popcorn, and you you're just eating low kernels. quality popcorn. Okay, whatever. That's but yeah. Point no, is, no, no. You don't want the fluff can get kind of stuck in the the top crown of your teeth. <laughs> that's it's never happened to you. <laughs> that's very specific, but I know what you're talking yeah. about. Okay, it's so it's terrible. not getting stuck in your teeth. Right. It's getting stuck on your crown. 
Exactly. Look at us. We're so sophisticated. We know all know. the body parts of the people teeth. are listening. They're just like, oh my gosh, this this, this show. Why am I paying five ninety nine a month to listen to this? Right. Wait, yeah. On our yeah. Patreon, that That's doesn't right. exist yet. It doesn't exist yet. <laughs> but uh, okay, I, black I, pepper. I don't know. Okay, I can see the appeal if it's just like a, you're doing it because you need something. It's like the you know. I'll tell you this. I used to always envy people who chewed tobacco. I thought it looked so cool. You know, you chew so this tobacco. is your version of it's chewing version. tobacco, right? I know it's, it's chewing it's tobacco is terrible tobacco. for you and all that stuff, but I'm like, man. So this is the healthy cool doing, yeah, because yeah. you get to spit you know out stuff. Of course, right, right. Interesting, right? Okay, so that's a defense of it. Okay, there you but, go. Uh, it's not worth eating, but it might be worth it for the social and the cool factor. Although I do it alone by myself, so. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to uh, old dead guys. Talk about Irenaeus. This is the dude we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. Just a little background on Irenaeus. So like you mentioned earlier, he is a uh, he was exposed to the teaching of Polycarp, who was an, a, a disciple of the Apostle John. So Irenaeus is third generation, if we include the initial apostles. He's second generation after the apostles. It's possible that he had heard John as well. Um, I mean, but also even if not, he's just, we know he's a, he's a disciple of a disciple of John, which is pretty cool. Um, he lived and was Bishop of Lyon or Lyons, if you want to pronounce it the way Americans <laughs> do, <laughs> uh, which is a region in, uh, Southern France. So he was actually away, uh, delivering a letter when the Bishop of Lyon was... Bishop of Lyon. He was... He Lyon. died in prison. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, as a result of... There was a big persecution there um, during the time of Marcus Aurelius. So this is From the... Gladiator. The gladiator emperor. Yep. Marcus Aurelius. So a lot of Christians were in prison so he in knew that Russell section. Crow. He did. Wow. Russell Crowe is I Irenaeus. Bet, I bet in that scene in, Gla- in Gladiator, when he, you know, at the very end, there's a whole crowd. I bet, I bet Irenaeus is there. Actually, I doubt he would go to a gladiator. Yeah, I was just going to say, that, that's one thing that the early Christians were famous for, Brian. They're gladiator Lame. fights. Lame. Yeah, well. Thankfully, we don't go to gladiator fights. We just go to UFC fights, ah, which are the same thing. Or football games. Hot take. Uh, oh, dang. Oh, dang. <laughs> it just that should be a hot take. I know. Next time. I love time. football. I, I, I don't care. I know. But, yeah, he took the role of the bishop after the bishop was imprisoned and died in prison. And he was known for being very uh, down to earth. He had several missionary journeys. He wrote a lot, <laughs> as we discovered while trying to read a lot of his work. He wrote a massive tome called Against the Heresies, which is like 500 pages long. Um, very well steeped in scripture. And we talked about how the first generation after the apostles, Polycarp, Clement, Ignatius, they were not brilliant theologians. This is where you get a little bit of a, a shift. Irenaeus is actually a brilliant thinker. So he's he's a philosopher, he's a theologian. His works have thousands of quotations from the Old and New Testaments, and he's interacting with other philosophies of the day, the Gnostics, different groups of the Marcionites, and he's giving both scriptural and logical arguments. Would you consider him to be an apologist for the faith? Uh, he, sure. If, if by apologist, we just mean he's defending certain core tenets of the faith sure. yeah, against some of the other philosophies. And we'll get into the specifics of how he does that, but he's the bishop. Um, we don't know if he was martyred or not. The events around the end of his life are unclear. Some sources say he was martyred. Some say he's not. 
So there, there's a little bit of ambiguity, but he's a disciple of a disciple of John. So that's Polycarp, Bishop of Lyon in Southern France. Uh, one famous instance in his life was he entreated the Roman uh, bishop, the Bishop of Rome, wanted to excommunicate lots of churches in Asia for not celebrating Easter on the same day. So talk about petty, right? Uh, Irenaeus basically argued to him and said, we should not divide over this. We should not excommunicate people over celebrating Easter on a different day. So he was known as a peacekeeper and his name Irenaeus actually means peacekeeper. So he lived up to that name in multiple instances in his lifetime. Now you talked about him I mean, he wrote this big book called yeah. Against Heresies yep. that you mentioned, and it's massive. It is. Right? Um, and what, we read it all. What's the reason <laughs> that he wrote this book? Talk about the specific, what, what is he known for? Uh, he's known specifically for his defense of orthodox teachings, the apostolic teachings against the heresies of Gnosticism and Marcionitism. And we mentioned Marcionitism earlier when we talked about Polycarp. Polycarp dealt with these guys. Irenaeus deals with them as well. And on his missionary journeys, it's speculated that he ran into these groups. And so he was he was talking to these guys. These were not just abstract philosophers. He really understood where they were coming from. Yeah, yeah. They were they were they were biblical in that they were using the Christian texts to try to argue for certain non-biblical positions. So they at least had shared assumptions. And they a could lot both of go to the Bible work, and argue over it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So he's quoting the Old Testament, New Testament, and arguing over interpretations, basically. How do we make sense of these passages and what do they show us about God and Jesus? And so he's dealing with the Gnostics. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Gnostics were a philosophical sect, I guess, or a sure. religious sect that believed there was this sort of hidden knowledge to salvation. Yeah. And they were anti-materialists. They they were against the material world because they figured that the physical world is where corruption comes from mm -hmm. and that your spirit is the thing that's pure. Right. And that you, the goal is to kind of transcend your body. Yeah, purging. Mm -hmm. And to go into the sort of this spiritual realm. Right. And so because of there's a lot of aesthetic pra practices. Meaning aesthetic. Aesthetic, sorry. Yes. Aesthetic practices. <laughs> you know, fasting. Yes. Uh, you know, denial, abstinence from sex, all these mm -hmm. kinds of things, which Christians aren't against Sure. But they right. don't believe that that's making you, uh, elevating you in any sense. Right. It's not like the goal is to achieve some sort of nirvana. Right. Getting and that, rid and of that's your body. Sort of, so in a lot of ways, Gnosticism is, is sort of the prototype for modern day new ages. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the idea that your body is sort of this flesh prison mm -hmm. and you're trying to escape it. And, and there's also the Gnostics viewed the God of the Old Testament as different from Jesus. Right. So Jesus was sort of a messenger from a greater God that was yeah. good. Mm -hmm. And the God who created the physical world, because the physical world was corrupt, right. was also himself corrupt. Yeah. And so there's a there's a sectioning off of the Old Testament as saying, well, that's not the true God. Yeah. And Irenaeus is going to go to great length to say, no, th that Jesus is the recapitulation, meaning mm -hmm. that's a fancy word of saying he's sort of the retelling of the story yeah. of the Old Testament. That there's a continuity between the Old and New Testament, yeah. which is huge. Yeah. He's saying that the, that the Old Testament is the same God that's revealed in the New Testament. And, mm. that, and the God of the Old Testament is the one whom Jesus Christ reveals to us in the incarnation. So yeah. he's, he wants to, to connect the Old and New Testaments together as a defense of the gospel. Right. So he, he, he has lots of arguments. One... One of the most striking arguments that he makes, and this is sort of a, um, 
it's kind of like a practical or a meta argument he makes against the Gnostics. And he says, okay, well, we're arguing over interpretations of certain texts. My interpretation comes from Polycarp, who came from John. Right. And so there's a direct link. This is where you see that apostolic link, again, used in this important way that the Gnostic sects sort of just had the Bible on their own. And they had these teachers who were trying to understand and exegete the text, but they didn't have the right discipleship link. There was no link historically to the earliest apostles. And every time uh, he gets into an argument with one of these guys, that's his trump card. Ultimately, he says, well, I got this from Polycarp who got it from John. Where did you get your reading from, right? So we both have a text, right? How do we interpret this text? Who adjudicates which of these interpretations is the right one? He said, well, I have apostolic authority on my side because this is what John taught to Polycarp, and this was the consensus of the apostles. Think about how necessary that is. Yeah. I mean, again, you don't want – if you read church history, and, and one of the things we've been discovering, and if you've been following our episodes, you'll notice this, apostolic authority is mm-hmm. very important. Yeah. Why? Because you're going to have a bunch of people saying different things, and you need to make sure, no, I got this from John. Right. I got this from – uh, I got this from Peter. Yeah, I got this from source? the actual people who are with Jesus. Right. And the early church recognized that part of the preservation of the truth is through ordained teachers of the truth who yeah. understand how to rightly interpret the scriptures. I think we all realize this where we go, well, that's just your interpretation. That's just your interpretation. Well, we have to have somebody Some who can give us something that goes, no, this interpretation traces back to the people who knew Jesus. Right, right. And... That's why Irenaeus is like, look, I learned this. It's not just me reading the Bible and you reading the Bible. It's right. like, I'm interpreting this through the grid that was given to me right. by people before me who knew Jesus. Yeah. And he's one of the first guys to talk about this rule of faith, Yeah. which is basically an interpretive grid of understanding. It's this like is what yeah. mm-hmm. the apostles taught. Yeah. Right. And so when you're combating heresies, having a lineage is really important. And we know that today. I mean... It's sort of like whenever you want to know, uh, if you want to learn about the founding of a company, mm. you want to talk to the family members of the founder or the sure. people or his successors. Or the, the, there, there's this sort of understanding of you want to see, okay, who's passing down this knowledge? Right. Right. Who? Where can I trace this back to? To eyewitnesses, to people who are with Jesus. And uh, and that's that's playing a, a, a an important role here. Um Something that he talks about against the Gnostics. Remember, they're anti-material. Mm-hmm. Uh, they think the, the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. Um, and they also have this view of the Old Testament God is not the true God. What are some ways that he goes against the Gnostics? So one of the, one of the most distinctive things or, or insights that Irenaeus gives us is this idea that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need creation. And we might think that that is really counterintuitive or we've heard it. Um, But notice what that truth does to our understanding of theology and God. If God doesn't need us, then that means creation is an act of pure love and grace on God's part, that God created birds and humans and all of reality to participate and enjoy his goodness. And so that can't mean that creation is bad or evil. It might be flawed because of the fall and because of sin, but it is good. It's a good thing that God created and God delighted in it. So 
it's not like the Romans had their concepts of gods who uh, they need humans to do sacrifices for them, or they need, they're, they're somehow reliant or dependent on creation. That's not the picture of God at all. So God is free from creation. Creation is a free act of God. Creation is good. God delights in creation. Creation can enjoy God. And he, he uses this metaphor of, of God being the artist, that creation is a canvas and God is delighting in the, in the creative process. It's not something necessary. God didn't have to create. And that insight really shapes how we think about God in his relation to creatures. Well, we, we looked at a video by Bishop Robert Barron, who's yeah. a Catholic bishop, and he is a scholar in Irenaeus. And mm -hmm. one of the things he mentions is how Irenaeus is one of the first Christians to really make a big deal about creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Yeah, right. And the idea that the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? That means God was complete and needed nothing right. before he created. Yeah. So creation is not out of necessity. It's, out of, it's a free choice of his will to create and to share his life with creatures. And like you were saying, it's freeing because if he needed us, then he would manipulate us or try to bend us to his ends, which you kind yeah. of see in Greek myths, sure. or Roman myths, yeah, or yeah. You know, things like that. But God doesn't need anything from us. Right. And therefore, all he does is love freely. He doesn't love to receive anything in return. He loves simply that we might have what is ultimately good. Right. And so all of creation is a gift, right? And he ties it, and, and, and so Irenaeus is saying, you Gnostics, and many of you are Marcionites. Marcion was a guy who denied the Old Testament, right. said mm -hmm. that it was a false god. Right. <clears throat> he says, well, you know, you notice the Old Testament's very earthy. I mean, mm -hmm. in the beginning, God created all things, the heavens and the earth, and, and he called all things good. Right. Right, which is against the vision of what the Gnostics were saying. But he's trying to say, no, listen, God uh, created all these things good as a gift to us that we should receive. And beyond that, our hope is in the resurrection, which is what? That we will one day have physical bodies again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that so if, if, if God's good gift to us was original life, and then God's redemptive gift to us is a resurrected life, then clearly the Gnostics are wrong. Yeah. That the material <clears throat> world isn't bad. And now it is fallen, sure. but that's the whole point of redemption and why Jesus came in a human body, right? To redeem what was lost in the fall. And so God doesn't need us, but rather gives creation as a gift. And creation is not evil, but rather just something that has been corrupted, that will, but is originally good, but that will one day be renewed. Yeah. And then he, this is his famous quote, right? And it's translated different ways, but the idea of the glory of God is man fully alive, mm -hmm. right? That's a statement that he makes in Against Heresies. What is the, can you explain that? I don't know if I can explain it, but we can we can, can try to unpack a little bit like of it. Pretend like you know what it's talking about. If and I make it up really for our viewers who don't know any better. Yeah, I've got a PhD, so whatever I say is probably not totally terrible. So if that was sarcasm, by the way, <laughs> if creation is good, and if creation, if if a human life is a grace to us that God doesn't need us, then that means God enjoys having humans around, that hu humans exist. So God delights when humans are alive, that they exist. And he delights when they're living well, when they're, when they're living the way they're supposed to. So in our, in our last episode about the Didache, we talked about God's laws being um, prescribing the best way for humans to flourish, the way of this is what human activity should look like. 
So God delights and God takes glory in, God's glorified the most when human beings are living well, when they're flourishing, when they're doing what they're supposed to be, when they're most alive. So you may have heard the, the famous Piper quote of God is most glorified and that's when we're most satisfied in him. The church father, John Piper. The church, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, there, that, this is a very similar structure and that's a very similar insight that God delights in and is most glorified in human beings doing what they were created to do. And that is enjoying God. The next, the next line after that quote that people don't quote is that man is enjoying and delighting God. That is the pinnacle of man's existence. And so God's glory is not the glory of the cosmos, but it is the glory of human beings living the way that they're supposed to, keeping the law, being in perfect relationships with one another. Um, now, sin ruins that, but the incarnation, the plan of redemption is trying to restore that picture. Well, think, well, think about that quote. I mean, the exact quote, and you were mentioning this, the whole thing is, for the glory of God is a living man, meaning the God's glory like you were, is expressed in in mankind living as they ought to, like you were yeah. mentioning and, and, and like sort of what Piper is getting mm-hmm. with, with his Christian hedonism. Uh, but then it says the life of man consists in beholding God. So there's this reciprocal kind of thing. Right. Uh, God is glorified in us living as we ought to. And we, our life, what does it mean to live as we ought to? Yeah. We behold God. So the more we behold God, the more we glorify him. Mm-hmm. The more we glorify him, the more we become truly alive. Yeah. Meaning, living as God created us for. So he created us to worship. That's our design. And when we don't live that way, we're living out of alignment with our design. Right. And this gets into all kinds of things about idolatry, which Irenaeus talks about. You know, if we give that, if we have this worship muscle Mm -hmm. and we use that muscle to worship idols, false things, our muscles are going to atrophy or it's going to, it's going to hurt us. Right. But if we use those muscles toward worshiping God, it strengthens us and invigorates us and gives us life, hmm. right? And so one of the things that he wants us to see is, look, you know, your, your whole life, your physical life, your mental life, your spiritual life, all of it being directed toward God is all of those faculties working as they were meant to work. Right, yeah. Think about even the Westminster Confession. The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy and him enjoy forever. And enjoy him forever. Right. What, what is the purpose of man? It's to, to do this function. And that is what God delights in most. And that is also what, what humans will delight in most too, to do that which we were created to do. And, and there's a, a kind of severe dissatisfaction in a life that's not lived the way it's supposed to. Do you think there are ways that we're Gnostics today in the church? Ooh, that's good. Um, probably in our, how we think about heaven, I think, maybe. We don't emphasize the the new creation and the physical bodies as much. And, you know, there's sort of this evangelical trope or misconception about when you die, you're just like living, playing a harp on a cloud and uh, that heaven consists just in like singing hymns forever and not, not living in a creation that is fully beautiful and restored to the way it was ought to be. So I, I think I think sometimes evangelicals tend to have an impoverished um, grasp of the goodness of the human body, maybe even the goodness of sex as well, and the goodness of families and creation, and and maybe even our, our role to steward creation as well. That's that's another well, gnostic there, attempt. And, and it seems like in the New Testament, you know, heaven is in what they call the intermediate state. It's a place right. where your spirit is with God, and then you're waiting for 
the new heavens and new earth, which is when you'll be resurrected. Right. And you'll have physical bodies. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think there's something to that. I think we get a little freaked out by the Old Testament at how, again, how earthy it is. It's yeah. talking about crops and fields, you know, and blessing your children and wombs. I mean, it's it's stuff of this world. Yeah. And we try to spiritualize it too quickly, I think. But I but it, it's we I don't think we should be afraid of how physical, you know, we're, we're, that the Old Testament is. And I wonder if that because it's so earthy, that's why people rejected it because it doesn't feel spiritual or right. religious or anything like that. Um, and and Irenaeus again, the work that he does to bridge the Old and New Testament is very powerful. Right. I mean, he talks about this. I, I used the word earlier, recapitulation, mm -hmm. right? That humanity was sort of created young and is growing and its story is fulfilled in Christ. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So another distinctive idea in Irenaeus is what, what, yeah, recapitulation. I'm trying to think of another word for it, but it's basically just this idea that the life of Jesus, the incarnation itself is supposed to be a retelling of the story of creation the way it ought to be. So Irenaeus talks about, and this is, he's taking this directly from Paul. You've got the first Adam who sins and then Jesus as the second Adam who doesn't sin. Uh, he even draws parallels between Eve and Mary. So where Eve was disobedient, Mary was obedient. And the life of Christ um, tells the story of perfect obedience and faithfulness to God. And in his death, the elect die. In his resurrection, the elect are raised from the dead. And in his ascension, the elect are seated in heaven with God. And so you have creation, you have redemption, and you have the eschaton. You have the final reckoning of all things in the life of Jesus. So the story of creation that went wrong, so to speak, that Adam didn't fulfill the task that he was ordained to do or, or, or commanded to do there, Jesus does. Jesus picks up everywhere that creation falls. And so in Jesus' life, we see the story of creation the way that it ought to be. But also, we see in Jesus's, in, in the Son of God taking on a human life, living through the totality of a human life, redeeming all aspects of that. So he says, he makes a big deal out of God became an infant to redeem sort of infancy. He redeems adolescence. He redeems... Um, adulthood. He redeems, and this idea of he has a human mind in addition to uh, a divine mind. So this idea that we see in the church fathers of, in order for Jesus to save us, he has to be like us in every single respect, except without sin. So that, you don't get that totally fleshed out until Athanasius, but there, it's sort of there as a, as a nascent idea in Irenaeus, that the life of Jesus is the fully human life, that's what humanity is supposed to look like, and he's redeeming all aspects of humanity in himself, and he's retelling the story of creation. So it's kind of this beautiful yeah, but he never poetic. became an old guy. So this is interesting. He, he says that he takes this idea that uh, Jews thought rabbis could only be, you could only be a rabbi if you were 30, and that was the stage that they considered adult. And so Irenaeus makes the argument that Jesus becomes an adult or fully of age because he lived until the age of at least 30. And so the category of old to the Jewish mind was just 30 and over. Hmm, sounds like a stretch to me. It's definitely know. a stretch, but it's still as as a as a metaphor for understanding. So he he yeah. looks at the, at the development of Jesus going through <clears throat> the 
standard life stages of a human, Mm -hmm. not only as his own life, but he's retelling the story of humanity in its Mm -hmm. infancy to its adolescence to its adulthood. Mm -hmm. And, but, but he's telling it in a way where he succeeds, whereas humanity fell. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's, you don't want to read too much into it. Yeah. It's a metaphor. Otherwise right. you get wonky, but it's still a nice picture. Now let's talk about some of the weird things in Irenaeus. I mean, that's a weird thing. But, <laughs> that is but, definitely but weird. There's some other, there's some stuff about the human will that he's very optimistic yeah. about. Seems yeah. like he views humanity as like a blank slate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's what, that, there's that talk about that. So there's that he, he says at one point, um, this is in book four of against heresies. If some had been made by nature bad and others good, then these latter would not be deserving of praise for being good for such they were created, nor would the former be reprehensible for thus they were made originally. But since all men are of the same nature, able both to hold fast and to do what is good. And on the other hand, having also the power to cast it and not do it, some justly receive praise among men. So he's saying basically like, I mean, there's, there's a, the way of thinking about the will was not super developed, but here it almost seems like he's, he's saying something borderline Pelagian that humans aren't born with a will that is intrinsically a slave to sin, that we have this ability to do what's good or not do what's good. And so if we err, it's totally on us. If we do good, it's totally on us. He doesn't quite say that we can rescue ourselves by our own wills. Um, he's definitely not thinking with the same categories that we are, but there's a little bit of sort of unsophistication in his way of thinking about the so human will and original def- sin. What is Pelagianism? Pelagianism is the is a heresy that Augustine most forcefully dealt with in his time, which is basically the idea that human beings are born like a blank slate with an ability to do good or not do uh, evil or whatever. And so there's not an innate predisposition to sin or an it's, innate it's tendency. It's a blank slate. You're yeah. born a blank slate. Born a blank slate. Right. And in principle, it is possible to live a sinless life as a human. And this idea was argued against by Augustine and all of the church councils after that um, said that it's heresy, that human beings are born fallen. And that fall prevents us from living a sinless life. And so that is, that, that's the state of the human condition. That's why we need to be freed. Our right. wills are not neutral. They right. are predisposed to sin. And what's the semi do? It just allows you to, as a philosopher, hedge your bets and say, you're not totally one thing, but you're, yeah, it, yeah, it sounds, kind, it sounds kind of Pelagian, but okay. not, you know, it's in that direction. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, he's got, he's got some, I, I don't think this is. Irenaeus being heretical or unorthodox, but I think it's just a, it's a reminder that doctrine develops and we get a greater understanding of concepts as, as time goes on. And, you know, people think about these things more deeply and the church is still, remember, this is still the second century. This is just towards the end of the second century. So these concepts are still being articulated and we're finding the right language to describe original sin and the human will and brokenness and and Irenaeus is, is doing a good job of that, but these concepts don't come into their full fruition until a little bit later. Something to remember is this is how theology gets clarified. Right. The fact that he wrote a book called Against Heresies, what does that do? He has to 
understand objections to Orthodox Christianity. Hmm. And then he has to clarify teaching to respond to those rejections. And actually heresies are sort of an inbuilt sort of mechanism in the world that allows the church to clarify what they mean. Mm -hmm. You don't clarify unless something's unclear and people start saying things that are wacky. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's actually good. This This is how it progresses. And we have to remember that theology is developing in history, in certain circumstances. Right. It's never just abstractly, you know, suspended in midair. Yeah. And so he's all the theological insights are responses to historical issues. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't expect Irenaeus to speak to things, you know, in the 16th century or right. to the 20th century. Right. Really, he's speaking in his current moment and going, look, against this idea of God being anti-matter or that right. they're being... Uh, two different kinds of gods, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, mm-hmm. denying the goodness of the body. These are the things I'm aiming towards. And so you have to understand that and don't expect me to answer questions that aren't right. being asked currently. Yeah. And I think doing good history is recognizing people within their times, what they're dealing with, what they see, and not reading into Irenaeus things that we see now. Yeah, I mean, and and when we talked about the recapitulation being a little bit strange or maybe counterintuitive, one reason he he develops that theme is responding to the Marcionites. So we forgot to mention this, but the Marcionites said that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Right. And Irenaeus' argument is, look at the life of Jesus. It tells the story from Adam until the end. That means there's a unification of the two Testaments, that what took place in the Old Testament is part of the story that is being told in the life of Christ. That that in, in Jesus, you have the prophets and the scriptures and Israel and all of that. And so there is a unification of the two testaments. And Irenaeus really forcefully argued for that. And a lot of the the Gnostics and the Marcionites, well, how can God create a creation that is imperfect, right? Surely this is the result of some lesser deity. And Irenaeus gives this really striking answer and says, God created the world and the world fell. And, And the incarnation is not plan B. God decreed that the incarnation would happen and then decided or ordained that creation would fall so that the incarnation would happen. And so this is this is one of those debates that you get later on with the Reformation. Well, what's significant about that? What's significant is that the incarnation is not plan B. That God didn't go like, oh, shoot, humanity fell. I need to figure out how to rectify this. The significance is God from all eternity wanted or desired to show himself to humanity and unfurl his glory in humanity. And so creation was the vehicle to allow that. So God decided that the incarnation was going to happen. And then the and creation, then creation is a stage. Exactly. So I, I want yeah. to, I, I know I'm going to put on flesh, you know, so I'm gonna create creation so that there can be a place for me yeah. to enter into. Mm-hmm. Which is, it's, it's, it's striking. And Irenaeus, as far as we know, is the first thinker to sort of articulate that, but he gets that from Romans 5 when when Paul talks about from the beginning of all ages, things like that. Um, and you see that sort of language in the New Testament, but Irenaeus develops it a little bit as a response to the Gnostics who talk about, well, how can, how can a good God create an imperfect world? Um, he said, well, it's to set the stage for something that's even greater, that there's something even more beautiful about right. a creation that is redeemed through God taking on humanity than just creating a world that never, ever, ever goes awry. Deep stuff. Yeah. I mean, I love that the fact 
that the church was thinking so biblically, so thoughtfully about doctrine. I mean, these yeah. weren't just superstitious people back there doing this Christian thing. I mean, they they were intellectually challenged. And I mean, this is a work that stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. And it's still shaping Almost us 2000 today. years, yeah. So uh, again, Irenaeus Against Heresies, it's a very big book. I mean, we didn't even read the whole no. thing. But we, <laughs> there are great excerpts in it. You could even just go online and look up good quotes from sure, Irenaeus. Yeah. But a uh, really important church father, really set the stage for a lot of things to happen in the next few centuries. And uh, someone who I think still speaks today and has something to say to us today. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and uh, tell your friends about it. And uh, we will see you next week.